Dhyana Ki Jai, Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai, Matura Dhamma Ki Jai, Navadrit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai, Gangamai Jamuna Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prasthaya, Bhutale, Sri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nityanamane, Namaste Saraswati Deve, Gauravani Pitarane, Nirvasesis and Nivadi Paskatyade, Satarane, Vande Ham Sri Guru, Sri Uta Padakamalam, Sri Gurun Vaishnavamstha, Sri Rupam Sagrajatam, Sahagana, Raganatam, Vitams, Tam Sajivam, Sadvoitam, Sadvadutam, Parijana, Sahita, Krishna Chaitanya Devam, Sri Radha, Krishna Param, Sahagana, Lalita, Sri Vishakam, Vitamstha, Vanchakalpatri Vishcha, Kripasindaviyabhaja, Patitanam, Pavanavya, Vaishnavabhinamor, Namaha. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. February 12th, 2016. This is Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii. And we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 9, Text 33. Chapter 9 is Brahma's Prayers for the Creative Energy. And today is also Vasa Panchami, which is the first day of spring in India when the deities are wearing yellow. Appearance Day of Srimati Vishnu Priya Devi, Puja for Sarasvati, Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur's disappearance, Pundarik Virginity's appearance, Raghunandana Thakur's appearance, and Raghunath Das Goswami's appearance. So, quite a plethora of holy days today. Okay, so we're going to be reading text 33. Yadarahitamatmanam Putendriya Gunashayai Swarupena Mayopetam Pasyan Swarajamrichati Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. When you are free from the conception of gross and subtle bodies, and when your senses are free from all influences of the modes of material nature, you will realize your pure form in my association. At that time, you will be situated in pure consciousness. Purport. In the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, it is said that a person whose only desire is to render transcendental loving service to the Lord is a free person in any condition of material existence. That service attitude is the swarupa, or real form, of the living entity. Lord Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the Chaitanya Charitamrita also confirms this statement by declaring that the real spiritual form of the living entity is eternal servitorship to the Supreme Lord. The Mayavada school shudders at the thought of a service attitude in the living entity, not knowing that in the transcendental world, The service of the Lord is based on transcendental love. Transcendental loving service is never to be compared to the forced service of the material world. In the material world, even if one is under the conception that he is no one's servant, he is still the servant of his senses, under the dictation of the material modes. Factually, no one is master here in the material world, and therefore the servants of the senses have a very bad experience of servitude. They shudder at the thought of service, because they have no knowledge of the transcendental position. In transcendental loving service, the servitor is as free as the Lord. The Lord is swarat, or fully independent, and the servant is also fully independent, or swarat, in the spiritual atmosphere, because there is no forced service. There, the transcendental loving service is due to spontaneous love. A reflected glimpse of such service is experienced in the service of the mother unto the son, the friend's service unto the friend, or the wife's service unto the husband. These reflections of service by friends, parents, or wives are not forced, but are due only to love. Here in the material world, however, the loving service is only a reflection. 
The real service, or service in Swarupa, is present in the transcendental world in association with the Lord. The very same service and transcendental love can be practiced in devotion here. This verse is also applicable to the Jnani school. The enlightened Jnani, when freed from all material contaminations, namely the gross and subtle bodies together with the senses of the material modes of nature, is placed in the Supreme and is thus liberated from material bondage. The Jnanis and the devotees are actually in agreement up to the point of liberation from material contamination, but whereas the Jnanis remain pacified on the platform of simple understanding, the devotees develop further spiritual advancement in loving service. The devotees develop a spiritual individuality in their spontaneous service attitude, which is enhanced on and on, up to the point of Madhurya Ras, or transcendental loving service reciprocated between the lover and the beloved. Yada rahitam atmanam bhutendriya gunashayai swarupena mayopetam pasyan swarajyamrichati when you are free from the conception of gross and subtle bodies and when your senses are free from all influences of the modes of material nature you will realize your pure form in my association. At that time you will be situated in pure consciousness. So we have swarupa and swarajyam. Swa means one's own and rupa, of course, means form. Rajam means kingdom. So the living entity has their own form, their own place. Yad bhava bhavita diyo manujastitaiva sadpapirupa We have our own form and our own place. I mean, right now we have this form and we have a particular place, but they're not our real form. And what is the real form of the living entity? Prabhupada's saying... The service attitude is the swarupa or the real form. Voluntary love. Service out of voluntary love. So we all have some experience, as Srila Prabhupada mentions in this purport, that we all have, we all experience. We serve our, our children, we serve our friends, we serve our spouse or our beloved. Um, you know, we, we serve in so many ways, and ultimately, in, in one sense, it is voluntary. In one sense, it is voluntary. You know, you could say, well, you have to take care of your children. Well, no, you don't. People do abandon their children. They, they do. I mean, nowadays, uh, women are killing their children in the womb, and they're abandoning their children at different stages, so you don't have to. It, it really is a choice that I'm going to take care of my child. It's a choice that I'm going to serve my spouse. It's a choice I'm going to serve my friends, my my. Uh, company in my country. We don't, we don't have to. If, if we had to, then there wouldn't be people who didn't. Of course, in this world, if you don't, you can get in all kinds of legal trouble. Uh, so there's consequences. But the fact that there's consequences doesn't deny the fact that, in one sense, it really is voluntary. In another sense, however, uh, it's forced. Because we are servants by nature, Jivarasura, Paya, Krishna, and Nityadasha, we are servants. And therefore, in, in one sense, it is forced. We must serve. As Prabhupada says here, and we say many times, if one says, well, I'm not serving anyone, then you're serving your senses. You know, your body says you have to drink water, your body says you have to eat food, your body says, I have to use the toilet, I have to sleep. And, uh, you know, you, you have to obey. Of course, the yogis, one of the things that they're enjoying, one of the things they're relishing, is the ability to control their senses. So they can even control their breathing, right? And just, you know, some athletes practice this. They go underwater and, and don't take a breath for 20 minutes. But the yogis, they can go without breathing even for a week, slowing down their heartbeat, and they have this mastery over their senses. It's a certain kind of pleasure. And I think we've experienced that also. We fast for the day, do a near jowl, stay up all night. Yes, I've mastered my senses. Uh, but still, ultimately, we're the servant. Even if you can become the master to that great of an extent, uh, even like Bhishma, who could control the time of death, but ultimately you had to die. Just like Lord Brahma told her in Ikashipu, ultimately you're going to have to die. You're not going to be totally in control. So this is, is our experience. We have this sort of mixed experience of servitorship. We have the experience that it is voluntary, that I am choosing to serve. I choose who to serve. I can choose to serve my country, I can choose to serve my country's enemy, I can choose to take nice care of my spouse, I can choose to insult my spouse, I can choose to take care of my child or abandon my child. 
So I, I can make these choices. It is voluntary. At, at every moment, I'm making these choices. At the same time, I'm forced. There's consequences, right? If I'm nasty to my spouse and my spouse divorces me, then there's, there's consequences, right? If I don't serve my country, I serve my country's enemy, then I'm convicted of treason, and there's consequences. So there, there's some kind of force involved there, and I, I, I don't feel that it's, it's like this mixture of is it voluntary or not. Also, you know, the service is not purely out of, out of love. I'm thinking of something that I want to get back. This is our, our general experience also. You know, I'm serving, 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 serving voluntarily, but if the other party doesn't acknowledge my service, if the other party doesn't appreciate my service, if they're not grateful, or maybe if they don't give me something in return, right, then I become disturbed. I'm saying, you know, I've been loyal to you, I've, been, I've served you, I've given everything to you, what have you done for me? Like our former U.S. President John F. Kennedy famously said, don't ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But all the politicians, uh, we're running a presidential race right now, and all the politicians are talking about what the country can do for you. How can, the, how can you get jobs? How can you get security? Um, what can the country do for you? And people are voting for the candidates based on their usually false promises of what the country can do for us. So yes, I'm going to serve my country, I'm going to be loyal to my country, I'm going to pay my taxes, I'm going to serve in the armed forces, but what will I get? What will my country do for me? So this is our experience of of service. At the same time, we do find that serving others is more satisfying than just serving ourselves directly. I think this is also a, a very common experience, and it's kind of a mystifying experience. So if you have, you know, some money, and I give this example all the time, and you spend it on something for yourself... So that may be satisfying. Oh, I, I bought this nice thing for myself. I bought myself a car. Uh, but just I, I know somebody who recently bought a car for his mother. And he was so happy about it. You know, I bought my mother a car, a simple car, uh, old, old car. But still he was very happy. I bought my mother a car. So when we do something for someone else, it's more satisfying than when we do that thing for ourselves. This is our experience over and over and over and over and over again. And it's more satisfying initially, and it's more satisfying also over the long term. Right? I mean, those of us who cook, we experience that if the only person you're cooking for is yourself, it's kind of hard to make anything special. Why should I make something special for myself? Right? Who's going to sit down and make a lasagna <laughs> or samosas or something when they're cooking for themselves? But when you're cooking for your family, when you're cooking for your friends, you know, you're having a big party, a lot of people coming over... Then, oh, okay, you know, we'll make this special thing and that special thing. Now, a lot of people don't even clean the house for themselves. If their friends come over, they clean the house. So we all have this experience that when we're working for something higher than ourselves, then, you know, we feel enlivened. We feel more satisfaction than when we're just working for ourselves. Because that's our natural constitutional position, to serve to give that is that's the way we're, we're wired and this is what Sheila so what's interesting here is that our service nature has a form swarupa it has a form now some scholars who are not so personalistic want to argue well rupa could mean something other than form but that's the general meaning of the word. That's the most common meaning of the word. As usual with all words, there's varieties and shades of meaning, but generally rupa means form. So our form, Prabhupada says, is a service attitude. And that's our kingdom, our place, our swarajyam. And also it's our swarat. The word swarat also comes from the word swaraj. And just like in the Indian independence movement, they were talking Swaraj, we want independence. It's something less. Swaraj is something like being an autocrat, right? To be in charge of oneself. Swaraj, to be one's own king. Swarajyam, to have one's own kingdom, one own, one's own independence. And Prabhupada says here, right? He says, the servitor is as free as the Lord. There's no force whatsoever. You know, in this world, there's, there's some force. There's some force, there's some expectation, there's some 
burden, even though it's voluntary. There's some sense of burden. There's some sense of compulsion. But spiritually, our original form, there's no sense of compulsion. It's completely voluntary. And not only voluntary, but it expresses itself in different ways. So Prabhupada alludes to the different daibhavs here in the end of this purport, that one's proclivity for service, one's service attitude, has a particular flavor. And as one realizes one's particular flavor of service, one realizes one's corresponding form. So if one has a flavor of service that I am Krishna's parent, then one has a form as Krishna's mother or father. If one has a flavor of service as Krishna's beloved, then one has a form of one of the young cowherd maidens of Vrindavan or one of the queens of Dwarka, and so forth. So depending on one's particular kind of service that one wants to render, and different people like to give, even in this world, we like to give different kinds of service. You know, if we're having a big festival, so we have Adwaitacharya's appearance day coming up, Nityananda's appearance day, Gorpurnima. So we're saying, okay, we're going to have a festival for Lord Nityananda. And one person says, well, I want to cook. Oh, I want to dress the deities. Well, I want to clean. I want to uh, put together a slideshow. You know, different. I want to serve the prasadam. I want to organize a dance. I want to organize a drama. So different people have different proclivities for service, and the person who wants to dress the deities may not be the person who wants to serve the prasadam. The person who wants to serve the prasadam may not be the person who wants to operate the sound system and so forth. So we want to express our service in different ways, and that is our eternal form. So this concept that we have an eternal form of service, as Prabhupada says here, is the differentiation between us and the jnanis. Though the jnanis say that simply we want to become free from the modes of material nature, free from our forced service, and then we just stay in an attitude of peace. We don't go beyond that to doing active service. Whereas our philosophy is that our service in this world is the reflection of the real. The jnanis say that our service in this world being forced should simply be abandoned and then have no service. (laughs) So this is something like, you know, your arm is giving you trouble and you just want to cut it off. So we may feel that way. You know, if our arm is broken and it's in a lot of pain, we may just feel better to cut it off. You know, all the people who commit suicide, they're feeling like that. My life is so painful. My body is so painful. Everything in life is everything is just painful. So better to just destroy it. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my house, my house is a mess. Look everywhere. My house mm-hmm. is a mess. Just, you know, let's burn it down. Whereas the devotee says, no, let's clean it, all right? Let, let's fix it. Let's, let's, you know, take if your arm's broken and go and get it in a cast and get it set. Don't just cut it off. <laughs> so the devotee sees the forced service going on in this world as indicative that there is real service. So how do we get to that point of real service? And, of course, the indication is being given here that one has to be rahitam, free from, away from. Uh, rahitam also often, we talk about separation as rahitam, something that's not there. Free from the bhuta, the material elements, the indriya, the material senses, guna ashayai, under the influence of the material modes. So again, the jnani hears this and says, oh, okay, I don't have any self. <laughs> rahitam atmanam, I'm free from the self. I'm free from the material elements, I'm free from the senses, I'm free from the modes, I become nothing. Whereas we're saying, become free from the guna-covered self. Become free from the self covered by the modes. Become free from the false self. Take off the covering of the modes. Often in the Bhagavad Gita and throughout the Shastra, we have the words pure being used, that there's a pure living entity. Well, if there's a pure living entity... That means, and a way to purify, that means there must be something existing under the covering. We have this concept of purity and we have this concept of covering. So to remove the covering, uh, the service right now is being done through a covering. You know, it's kind of like if you have some kind of big mitten over your hand, you know, and you're, you're trying to do something with, with your hand, one it's covered and you can't use your fingers very well. So it's not working very well, and you say, okay, I'm going to cut off my hand, or you could just uncover your hand. So the devotees are saying to uncover their hand. Now, interestingly enough, 
there's two ways of thinking about uncovering. There's the Brahma Bhuta Prasanatmana Sochatina Kanchati Samasaveshu Bhuteshu Mad Bhaktim Labhateparam. There is, okay, first get uncovered and then you can engage in bhakti. And this was Arjuna's question at the beginning of the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Should I first get uncovered and once I'm uncovered, then I can see my real form of service and then I can do bhakti? And Krishna said, no, 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 don't do it that way. He said, that's going to be very troublesome. Uh, the way that Krishna most recommends is And that's what Srila Prabhupada is talking about uh, here in this purport, where he says it can be done here. He says, the very same service and transcendental love can be practiced in devotion here. So as we practice this service in love, that's what frees us from the mode. Hmm? So it's not that one has to get freed from the modes first by some other process, and then one can engage in bhakti. It's not that first you have to be a very pious person according to Varnashram, that will free you from the modes, and then you can do bhakti. Or first you have to become philosophically detached, that will free you from the modes, and then you can do bhakti. Or first you have to do yoga, and that will free you from the modes, and then you can engage in bhakti. I mean, that's possible, but Krishna says it's troublesome. It works, but takes a long time. The better method is just do bhakti. So that's the best kind of yoga, just to focus the mind on Krishna in service. That can be done here. So first, of course, it's done in a general way that... I'm ser- especially through the mood of service to the Guru, I am the servant of the Guru, I am the servant of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, I am working for the mission of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, I am working to please my Guru, and I'm serving the mission in so many ways, you know, I am a servant. And then as we get into that service mood, that service mood dissolves the modes of nature that are covering our body and mind, and starts to reveal our particular proclivity of service, and then one starts practicing in that proclivity. One starts practicing in the mood of dasya bhav or vatsalya bhav or sakya bhav or madhurya bhav to serve the Lord in that way in practice and that further removes any residual covering and finally one's real swarup and one's real swaraj manifest. And therefore the devotee is never, the one who's in bhakti yoga from the beginning never comes to the Brahma Bhutta stage in the way that the jnanis do. So the jnanis come to just a stage of of nothing, of neutrality, just this equanimity, right? Pandita Samadarshinaha. And just that, without anything positive. You know, kind of like you feel better, but you're still lying in bed, you know? <laughs> your, your fever's gone, your pain's gone, but you're, you're still lying in bed, you're not doing anything, you're not active. You haven't gotten out of bed. So the devotee never is at that stage. Never. The devotee, as when they get free from the modes of material nature, what they're doing is going from general service to a specific service. And so the service mood is maintained all along. And this service mood towards Krishna, and most importantly, towards Krishna's devotees, which again becomes more specific, one is serving all of Krishna's devotees as one's innate proclivity blossoms. One also gets a proclivity to serve and follow particular devotees. So this becomes simply more and more and more specific, and as one's real identity becomes manifest, the modes are naturally falling away. Uh, something like when a plant is growing, and Mahaprabhu compares bhakti to a plant, when a plant is growing, the growth of the plant itself breaks open the seed. It doesn't have to make a separate endeavor to break open the seed. The, the seed coating becomes just abandoned on the ground, Right? So this is the mood of bhakti. Bhakti itself breaks open the seed. So therefore everything is predicated on having an attitude and a mood of service. I was just hearing this morning that Srila Prabhupada said, if one doesn't have any other motive in serving the Lord, one is in pure devotional service, even if one is not very advanced. So the, the qualification for having this, being in pure bhakti and uttam bhakti, is not a question of whether or not you've really become already free from the modes of nature but whether or not the main mood is that of service, the main mood is that of pleasing 
the Lord without getting something in return? This is the question that we should be asking ourselves all the time. Do I have a serving mood? And we can tell whether or not we have a serving mood because Brahmabhuta Prasanatma, Savaipum Samparodamo Yatobhaktira Hoksajaya Hoitukiya Pritiyata Yad Yatma Suprasidati. This is what brings us great joy. Prabhupada wrote a letter to Jadarani. Without being joyful, you can't make any advancement. So Prabhupada talked about this voluntary joyfulness in terms of the management of his society. He said, be careful not to kill the spirit of enthusiastic service, which is individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. The art of management is to always set new challenges and inspire the devotees to achieve them. So such should be the way we manage ourselves. Such should be the way we deal with others, individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. The spirit of enthusiastic service, which is individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. Whenever we are using force, of course, sometimes in the material world, force must be used because there's criminal elements. And occasionally, force may have to be used. If you're a temple manager, you may have to say, you know, if you don't go to Mangalarti, you can chant your rounds, you can't live in the temple. However, as a general principle, force should not be used. An individual, spontaneous, and voluntary. You should respect the fact that even if somebody may be obliged in a, in a certain sense, you know, there's some kind of a contract, I'm married to this person, therefore they have some obligation, uh, you know, this person is my guru, this person is my disciple, therefore there's some obligation, this person is living in the temple, therefore there's some obligation. In the ultimate issue, it's all voluntary. And it's voluntary moment by moment. Whatever anybody's doing is always voluntary. And to honor that, and to help people, help ourselves, and to help others get that voluntary enthusiasm for service. Now, how do we get that voluntary enthusiasm for service? Well, by doing it, because it is just so joyful. Uh, there's one devotee a few weeks ago who told me, you know, I dress the deities because it's just so blissful. It, it's just so wonderful. It fills me with such joy. I don't want to do anything else but to do service. So that's one of the main ways we get the impetus, and the other way is by, of course, association and hearing. Hmm. So I wanted to look a little bit today. We don't have a whole lot of time um, at the different festivals that are going on today. So Vasat Panchami, of course, today in India, the fields are covered with yellow flowers, especially in the Rindavan area and the the deities are all covered with yellow as the color of spring. And of course, we are coming up to the holy festival that Krishna and his associates likes to pray in the springtime. You know, we like the, uh, here in Hawaii, we don't really have seasons. I mean, I'm wearing something because it's probably, what, like 17 degrees out Celsius, 65 or something like that, uh, which is about the coldest it ever gets here. But we don't really have and that's just in the morning during the day. It gets much warmer. It gets uh, maybe like 23, 24 Celsius. So we don't really have seasons here in Hawaii, and that's one of the attractive features here. People like to come here during their winter. Uh, at the same time, the variety of seasons is also attractive here on this island. We have 30 different climate zones just on the one island. In fact, even on this one property, going from the front of the property to the back of the property, you go to a slightly different um, weather situation. And people like this variety. Krishna likes this variety. In the spiritual world, the Goswamis explains, there's six seasonal forests, and then there's a forest that combines all the different seasons, and Krishna walks through all of these seasonal forests every day, different kinds of flowers, and so forth. So Krishna enjoys variety. He's, he's really what I like to call a variety man. Uh, just yesterday, I was looking at a very interesting video made by a scientist against evolution. And he made the point that there is a lot in the world that is not there simply for function. Darwinian evolution says the world should be simply about functionality. What helps you adapt to your environment and to eat, sleep, mate, and defend? And that should be it. There should be nothing besides eating, sleeping, mating, and defending and adapting to your environment. There should only be functionality. And the scientist was providing many examples of things in the world which have absolutely nothing to do with function or adaptation. So many, many trees, he gives the example in the same environment, that have different shaped leaves. And why? what do the different shaped leaves have to do 
with adapting to the environment and survival. You know, there's one little shape of the maple leaf and another shape of the oak leaf. When I was in secondary school, we had a biology class where we would identify trees by the shape of their leaves. We would collect different leaves. So this is simply artistic. It's just variety. It doesn't serve a function other than beauty. It doesn't serve a function other than beauty. It made me think about the shudras in society who are the ones who provide the beauty in society, the art, the music, the drama, without which society would be uh, of no value. And the scientists also gave the example of language, that the varieties of language in human society are not necessary for survival, not necessarily for adaptation. All the other species survive and adapt without complex language. So that God likes variety, and he likes variety in the, in the seasons also. So it's the appearance day of Vishnu Priya Devi. Vishnu Priya Devi is the wife, the second wife of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. She is the wife who lived in separation. I mean, in this verse we have the word rakitam, which Prabhupada's translating being free from the gunas, to be separated from the gunas. So to be separated from the gunas is a wonderful thing. To be separated from the Lord is a terrible thing. You know, we're, we're suffering here in separation from the Lord. Vishnu Priya, of course, her separation from the Lord is, is another kind of ecstasy. Very hard for us to understand because in this world, being separated from someone we love is just simply agony. Of course, even being with somebody you love may be simply agony. But with Vishnu Priya, her service and separation to the Lord is her great pleasure. And she lived as a tapasvani when the Lord took sannyas. She was a very young girl only about 16 years old. Uh, she had no one else to take care of her. She stayed with her widowed mother-in-law, and she performed austerity uh, for her whole life. The concept uh, of, of some uh, misinformed uh, or misguided persons that the Shastric or Vedic standard for woman is simply being a grihasta is incorrect. There is also vanaprastha or renounced life for women, and Vishnupriya lived the bulk of her life as a renounced woman, and she wasn't under she wasn't under the protection of any particular man. She had never had any children. Uh, we don't hear that she went back to a father or a brother. Uh, just that she stayed with Sachi Devi and served Sachi Devi. So the two ladies living both as renunciates. Then Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur's disappearance. So Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur, uh, such a prolific writer of very elevated subject matter. Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur of course, wrote commentaries on Bhagavad Gita, on the Bhagavatam. Uh, just uh, unbelievable how much he wrote. He wrote, of course, the guide for Bhakti from Shraddha to Prema. Uh, he wrote of his own uh, longings for serving the Lord. And his commentary and his insights really take us very deeply into this Swarupena of service. So we have, of course, the six seasonal forests, they're serving the Lord in their variety. Vishnu Priya, she's serving the Lord in her austerity and separation. Vishnu Chakravati Thakur, he's serving the Lord, particularly through his writing of these literatures, which are helping us even today, so many hundreds of years later. Pandurik Vidyanidhi, whose appearance day today, is a very interesting person. Of course, he is said to be an incarnation of Rishavanu, the father of Srimati Radharani. And in Gorilile, he was very wealthy. He was living in great opulence, which caused Gadadhar Pandi to have some doubt about his advancement in devotional service. And of course, this is a, a transcendental lila, but the point is there that we often judge by the externals. Uh, in our sociology class at Bhaktivedanta College, we have one movie that we recommend called Kumari about this... Uh, American, young American man who was of Indian descent and decided to fake being a guru and deceive people as a sociological experiment, uh, which I, I think he kind of later regretted because he really harmed people. So he practiced having an Indian accent. He didn't naturally have an Indian accent, and he grew out his hair and beard, and he put on saffron cloth, and he created his own trident and things like that. And just because he had the appearance of a guru... So therefore, people thought, oh, he's a guru, and he got so many followers and disciples. So people are often fooled by the externals. And Pundarik Vijayanidhi didn't have the right externals. He was living in luxury. He had, you know, silk sheets on his bed and, and fancy food and fancy clothes and so forth. 
But Gadadhar Pandit saw that as soon as Pundarik Vidyaniti heard the verse from the 10th Canto, chapter 14, where Lord Brahma says, you've already given yourself to Putana. And Putana came to kill you, but you accepted her as a mother. You already gave yourself to Putana. What more is? What more can you give to the residents of Vrindavan who treat you with such love? And Pundarik Vidyaniti immediately went into ecstasy. So these are the, the of course, uh, symptoms of ecstasy can also be faked. But the real symptom of service is whether or not one has love, whether or not one has affection for the Lord. That's the real thing. Uh, not so much, you know, does one uh, look this way or look that way. Um, Raghunandana Thakur, who had great faith in the Lord's eating of prasadam, and Raghunandas Goswami's appearance. So we're in the final stages of working on publishing one of Raghunandas Goswami's books, Manashiksha, which is a padati or an instruction manual, uh, particularly for Raganuga Sadhana Bhakti, for attaining the spontaneous stages of bhakti. And Raganathas Goswami, it's explained by Bhakti Nachakur in his Jaiva Dharma, was particularly entrusted by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu through Swarup Namadar to expand on the details of how to develop this loving mood, which we're talking about today, this service attitude in a loving mood. You know, how do you do it? Because one can, well, service attitude in a loving mood, you know, what does that mean? How do I do that? You know, what does it look like? And we talked about before that without the examples of the sadhus, these these concepts remain very ephemeral. They remain very theoretical. And we simply take, well, okay, I know what it's like to serve my friend here. I guess it's something like that. And, but persons such as Raghunath Goswami give us their own inner mood. So he's in, in Manashikshi, he's talking to his own mind. In his other books, he gives the examples of his own longings, Vilasakusha Mandali. So he's giving you know, how he desires to serve the Lord. And it's not that one should just copy-paste that, because one's own desire to serve the Lord as it evolves may be different from that of Raghunathas Goswami. But he's using that as a template. This is how I express my loving service to the Lord. And you can also express your loving service to the Lord in this way. Of course, Raghunath Das Goswami is also very interesting. Unlike Punjarik Vidyaniti, he did accept the outer appearances of, of renunciation to a, a, a very extreme degree, one of the most extreme degrees. Even Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself did not practice external renunciation to the degree of Raghunath Das Goswami. Raghunath Das Goswami was born in a very wealthy family, and he, his family were devotees, but they were prakritabhaktas. They were materialistic devotees, which is what most religious people in the world are. Um, doesn't matter what religion you go to. <laughs> they're, they're basically in the world of matter, although they're, they're trying to serve the Lord. So he ran away from home, and he went to Jagannath Puri. And in Jagannath Puri, he gradually increased his renunciation, especially in regarding food. And we find, for example, the different types of vanaprastha in the Bhagavatam are defined in terms of how they eat. So that's, you know, one of our main satisfactions of the senses, of course, is, is food, this muscle in our mouth that says, give me this, give me that, give me something sweet and salty and fatty, you know, and the food scientists who, you know, what's the right amount of sugar and the right amount of salt and the right amount of fat so that you'll just keep eating our food over and over again and get obese and diabetes, but make lots of money for our company. So this is what's controlling everybody, you know, <laughs> running around by the tongue. The tongue. And therefore Bhaktivinoda is saying, right, that the service begins with the tongue. We're going to serve with the tongue. So Raghunathas Goswami, he did not even eat nice prasadam with the tongue. And generally, our way of serving is to eat wonderful prasadam that's been offered to Krishna. But Lord Chaitanya through Saragdamadar said to him, don't wear nice clothing, don't eat nice food, don't associate with materialistic people. Raghunath Das Goswami really took that uh, to heart. He got to the point that in Jagannath Puri, he wasn't even using his father's money to invite the Lord to meals, and he was going out and collecting rice, uh, rice prasadam that had been thrown in the street for the cows to eat and the part of that rice which the cows had rejected. So the cows went and yet ate the old prasadam rice and there was some of it they didn't eat. He gathered that up, he washed it, 
he put some salt on it, and that was his food. Of course, after Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu left the planet, Raghunath Goswami went to Vrindavan, and he stayed uh, by Radhakund Shamakund. He stayed by Krishnadas Kaviraj, and every afternoon they would meet together. Raghunath Goswami would uh, give Krishnadas Kaviraj information from his diaries and the diaries of Swaruthamandar. And then, of course, uh, Krishnadas Kaviraj also had the diaries of Murari Gupta from Navadweep, and based on those diaries and those accounts, he put together the Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita. Raghunath Goswami also wrote his books there at the Bank of Radhakund, where he lived for a very long time. And he was the main one who excavated Radhakund. Now, of course, he didn't do the managerial work. He was the inspirational leader. The managerial leader was Jiva Goswami. So Raghunath Goswami worked intimately with Jiva Goswami to excavate Radhakund. So what we see now is Radhakund Shamakund that has been you know, dug out and there's been structures built around the kund and, and so forth. So that was done by Jeeva Goswami under the direction of Raghunath Das Goswami. And uh, this is Raghunath Das Goswami's example of service where he really uh, took nothing for himself. He took nothing for himself at all. I mean, he was eating a little buttermilk and a little rice and so forth and uh, he was, his life was dedicated to the service, particularly of Srimati Radharani and Srimati Radharani's place. So we have a place in the spiritual world, Swarajam. We have our, our kingdom, our place, which is just the right flavor for our particular service. So this is our essence of bhakti yoga, is getting this service mood. We can meditate on these people today who exemplify the service mood in, in their own uh, individual ways and how we will ourselves develop this service mood from moment to moment to moment. In fact, whenever we are in material distress, uh, we can notice it's because we've lost that service mood. We've started thinking, oh, how are other people serving me? What are other people doing for me? What's my wife doing for me? What's my child doing for me? And then we lose that service mood and we become angry, we become frustrated, and so forth. So... Not sure how this is going to work with this new platform, but we can take questions. About variety, at the same time you're talking about disappearances. Why do we say that there is, we often say there's no difference between appearance or disappearance? You just got funny. Did you hear my question? I, I, last thing I heard you say was about no different, no difference between appearance and disappearance. Correct. Well, and, and because we we're talking about variety, it seems, you know, in one sense there was a big difference, and in another sense maybe there isn't a difference. I was wondering if you could clarify that. Well, you know, obviously there's some difference. We have the song "Yay Anilo Prema Dana" about I'm going to hit my head on the rocks, and you know. I'm going to jump off Govardhan Hill because everybody's disappeared. So, obviously there's some difference. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's not that there's no difference. Uh, but we celebrate both because they're both glorious. So when the devotee leaves the world, that's glorious because they're going on to service someplace else and when they come in the world that's glorious because we have their association here and they're coming into service here you know just uh, there's one devotee who's already like 30 something and she's thinking about getting married and she said the devotee she's corresponding with thinking about marrying he would want her to move to another country and she said, you know, I really like this, this man, and we're very compatible, but, you know, my family, my parents are here, I don't want to move to another place. So I said, yes, that's why especially the bride's parents cry at the wedding, because generally the, somebody moves away, and it's usually the daughter, although not always. As I give the example, Sarvabhama Bhattacharya, the son-in-law came and lived with them. But generally, somebody moves away. Right? So, uh, weddings are happy occasions. When, when your daughter is born into your family, so that's a happy occasion. And when she gets married and moves away, that's also a happy occasion. But there is, but there's some 
uh, a difference there. There's also maybe some sadness, some crying that the daughter is moving away. She may move across the country. She may move to a foreign country. You know, you may only see her once a year. I mean, uh, but that's but that's still happy. You know, your children grow up and they have their own place, and you may only see them once or twice in a year. So that's their unhappiness, but happiness. You're happy that they're situated in their next phase of life. Is that all right? Right, yeah, it's great. Thank you. Nice. Anybody else? Again, I can't see the comments on the start meeting. Uh, Kandita put some comments. Do you want to speak about this, Kandita? I do also. But it's not actually a question. Um, anyone else? Okay. Yes, I like the the uh, the idea of artistry. It's interesting because I just saw that video yesterday, but it's an argument that that I first read from uh, when I read of, of all things in a Sherlock Holmes story that I read as as a as a child where that was Sherlock Holmes' argument for the existence of a creator. He said, why are there flowers? They're not necessary. He said that the points not only to the existence of an intelligent creator, but to someone who's good and and caring. But yeah, the, the variety of artistry we see in the world is not necessary for function. It goes far beyond function, and it's not necessary for adaptation to environments. It's A lot of it is not functional at all. And even if, uh, he also gives this example, this one scientist, even if it's adaptive, it may go far beyond what's necessary for adaptation, and he, like human language. He said, according to Darwinian philosophy, a human language would have had to have appeared, the facility for language, in the earliest humans, which according to evolutionary philosophy, were just cavemen who didn't have concerns above eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. Why did they need a more complex language than the animals? The animals eat, sleep, mate, and, and defend just fine with their very rudimentary language. So our human language is far, far above what's needed for survival and adapting to environments. It's, it's, it, it, therefore, its very existence doesn't make any sense in terms of Darwinian evolution. It just, it's just illogical. You know, and all of our artistry in the human form, our painting, our music, our theater, and so forth, uh, what functional or adaptive purpose does it serve? It doesn't. It's, it's simply beauty. So the, the concept that God is interested in variety and interested in beauty, he's not just functional. Uh, they were giving the example, you know, a building. So you can design a building simply for function, like a warehouse. Or you can design a building with great beauty. And Krishna has designed everything with great beauty. It's not merely functional. Uh, it's, it's also interesting in, in thinking about this point. I thought about how sometimes devotees, especially beginning devotees, may have this concept that, okay, I have to do everything in Krishna's service. I, everything I do has to be useful. I, do, I don't want to be frivolous. You know, Prabhupada was saying, don't waste time. So everything has to be useful. And that's true. Everything should be to serve Krishna 24 hours a day. However, the fact that everything has to be useful doesn't mean that everything has to be purely functional without artistry. That what's useful for Krishna and what's pleasing to Krishna is not merely functionality. But Krishna appreciates great variety and great beauty. And even if that beauty and variety don't serve any adaptive, survivalistic function. Now, I was uh, thinking about how Srila Prabhupada liked his books to be profusely illustrated. Of course, when Prabhupada did his books in India, he didn't have the funds, they weren't illustrated at all. But as soon as Srila Prabhupada had the means, he had his books profusely illustrated. Why? You don't need an illustrated book, especially for adults. It's not necessary. Again, it's not part of the... It's not functional. Uh, but yet, it's so pleasing to Krishna. 
right? And it's so much, you probably would say, windows to the spiritual world. Srila Bhaktisiddhanta and Srila Prabhupada, they wanted the dioramas. And Prabhupada would say, a diorama, he'd say, is worth more than the book. <laughs> so, this is service to Krishna doesn't mean that everything has to be utilitarian in a strict sense. You think about how in India for a festival, they create rooms out of flowers. They create walls and everything out of out of fresh flowers, inconceivable in America. You know, in America where it was such a rich country, and yet in, you know so many Indians they want to come here and get a green card. But in America, you'd only find such fresh flower decorations for the you know wedding or something of a very very wealthy person. But in, America, in India, it's quite common. That um, I'm sure today in Vasudev Panchami that so many temples are just decorated with flowers. So what is the, the function of that? How is that, you know, adapting to our environment for survival of the fittest? It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with, with Ananda. It has to do with, with beauty. Anybody else? I'm sorry, did I cut you off? Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, in the verse... Uh, Lord Brahma has been instructed about uh, giving up the grossness of the body and being free from both the material nature. I'd like to read two sentences from 29th chapter of the Krishna book. This is when Krishna is calling the gopis right with his flute. Uh, it says that the conditioned soul is subjected to birth and death, either by pious or sinful activities, but the gopis who began to meditate on Krishna's trans, uh, on Krishna transcended both position and became purified and thus elevates the status of the gopis already expanded from the pleasure focusing. So this is the sentence here. All the gopis who had concentrated their minds on Krishna in spite of paramour uh, love became fully purified from all fruitive reactions of material nature and some of them immediately gave up their material bodies developed under the three modes of material nature. So how is it possible that one can become a direct association, an associate of the Lord in his transcendental pastimes and still have a material body under the three modes of material nature. Well, that's one of the reasons that uh, there's the training ground in the planet of the material world where Krishna appears before one enters into the spiritual sky. So we find when Krishna appears in the material world, there's a whole spectrum of real spiritual realization among the persons who are associating with him. So when Krishna appears in the material world, he brings with him his Nitya devotees, you know, people like uh, Madhya Soda, Nandamaraj, Rohini, uh, Shimadhi Radharani, etc. They're not some sort of conditioned jivas who are attaining perfection. So he has those associates who come with him. Uh, some of them are his, you know, Shakti, some of them are liberated jivas and so forth. Then also the sadhana devotees come, and there are different degrees of perfection. So some of them are fully perfect, and they immediately join into the Lord's lila. Some of them finish their perfection in that lila. And some of them, some of the residents, and some of the associates of Krishna are not even in their eternal manifestations. Just like some of these gopis who still have some residual impurities to get free of, but still they're there as gopis. Whereas uh, if you read, I think it's Jiva Goswami, who talks about the wives of the Kuru and Puru dynasty, some of whom were glorifying the queens of Dwarka. And I think it's Jiva Goswami notes that these women in their next life would themselves be queens of Dwarka. So they were in Krishna's Leela and they were seeing Krishna, but they weren't in their ultimate position. They were in another position. They were part of Krishna's family, but they weren't situated in a direct marital relationship with Krishna. The similar situation is with the wives of the Brahmanas in Vrindavan that the wives of the Brahmanas wanted to have a conjugal relationship with Krishna. I'm not sure if all of them had that mood, but at least some of them did. And one of them achieved it. One of them immediately gave up her body 
and took birth as a gopi. But for the rest of them, they didn't. They stayed as Brahmana's wives, and they had that internal feeling, but it wasn't manifested in that particular lila. They would assume, I would assume that they would take birth again, where Krishna had his uh, lila in the material world, and then they would take birth as, as gopis. And then you have, of course, I mean, there's even demons in Krishna's lila in the material world, uh, what to speak of anybody else. But there's all varieties of persons, you know, when Krishna's walking around Vrindavan, when Krishna's uh, going on the streets of Mathura, you have Kubja, of course, there in, in Mathura. So there, there's all varieties. Krishna coming to the material world, you know, yada yada hi dharmasya glanar bhavati bharata, abhitinama dharmasya tadatmanam sudamnaha, paritranaya sadhunam vinashaya tradiskutam. Dharma samsapanartaya, sambhavani yuge yuge. So, Pritranaya sadhunam, to help the sadhus, and, you know, to enter into, into Krishna's lila. If we want to enter into Krishna's lila at the end of this body, completely in our spiritual form, then we have to have attained at least bhava, if not prema, in this life. So, that's preferable. What we're trying to do in this life is come to the stage at least of bhava and preferably of prema. And then we can directly participate in the Lord's pastimes in our eternal form, in our proper position in the material world. And then from there, we go to the spiritual world, to Goloka Vrindavan. However, if we're not uh, fully purified, we may still enter into those leelas and we may get purified in those leelas. And depending on our particular state our particular level of advancement would depend on do we appear there in our ultimate state but not yet fully realized in that state or do we appear in another position and then come to that level of realization and then again take another that that depends on on us but there's a great variety and of course if we're far below that then we take birth on the earth again and we can take birth you know in a devotee family or so forth or someone may do that for the sake of service, even if they are competent to enter into the Lord's Lila. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah. So I just have one more clarification, if you don't mind. Uh, so it says that uh, the gopis uh, in this position, they were elevated to the same position as the gopis expanded from its pleasure potency. Yes. So is... Um, is there jivas and then there's uh, gopis that are expanded from the pleasure potency? So it's a separate category, or does the jiva? Okay. Well, what what uh, you know? We're, we're we're you're starting to go way above my pay grade here. Uh, I'll I'll just do the best that I can. So the way that Srila Prabhupada consistently explains things is that when the jiva comes under the shelter of the internal energy, then the jiva can also be counted as the internal energy. And we are all expansions of Krishna. Sometimes Prabhupada says we're all expansions of Srimati Radharani. And one who's fully realized this swarup is really acting more as Shakti Tattva. So, you know, there are other people who say, well, there's eternally beings that are Shakti, Shakti Tattva and eternally beings that are Jiva Tattva and that's just it, but that doesn't seem to, way that, to be the way that Srila Prabhupada explains things at all. Um, he explains that when one realizes one's full position, then one is functioning as Shakti Tattva. And I, I, my answer to this would be, I think I'll understand it later. I think it will be clear later. I think this is very much related to the Achinta Beta Beta Tattva that we are one with Krishna and yet separate from him. So those who fully realize their position, in many ways they feel a oneness with the Lord. I mean, we have the stories told all the time about that when uh, Krishna and Radharani have some experience together, that Radharani's friends have the same experience as Radharani, even the, the same symptoms on their body as Radharani. So there's a, there's a kind of oneness, there's a kind of connection that's, I mean, so much so that the gopis imitate Krishna's pastimes and feel that they are Krishna. So one who, a liberated soul, is, in one sense, isn't functioning exactly as a, as a jiva. They're functioning as shakti. 
and another sense they're always functioning as a separate individual. But that's even true with Vishnu Tattva. So even Balaram and Krishna are separate individuals, and they're they're different tastes. Balaram has a different mood of enjoyment than Krishna. He has different sets of gopis. He has different uh, cowherd boys. I mean, of course, they have some of the same cowherd boys together. But he has his own mother, Rohini. Is a different flavor. Uh, although he's the same person, although he's also Krishna, he's a different flavor of enjoyment. So there's, as Prabhupada says here in today's purport, we agree with the jnanis up to the stage of liberation, and from there we diverge because we still maintain individuality. But we also agree that there is a kind of, of liberation and a kind of oneness, and that when one achieves a full enlightenment and full liberation, that one is, is no longer has this separateness. And yet there is a separateness of individuality, a chincha beta beta tattva. Therefore it is called a chincha. It is inconceivable to the materially conditioned mind. It is something that has to be experienced. I mean, we have other things that are a chincha, like that there's no material time in the spiritual world, and yet there's the astakalila lila. There's the eightfold pastimes that are expanding at different times of the day. So, how is that possible that there's a sequence of events and yet there's no time? It doesn't make sense. So how is it that we're both one with Krishna and yet we're separate individuals? What energy are we exactly? Also, another answer to that question is that Krishna's energies can be divided differently. In one sense, you could say Krishna just has one energy. In another sense, you can say he has unlimited energies. In another sense, you could say he has three energies. And how you divide them is, to some extent, subjective. Okay, I need to go now. Thank you very much. Shula Prabhupada, Kija.